Thank you very much, Jason and Lester. Let's um, pray as we come to uh, the word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can um, gather around it now. And we pray that you would speak to us. And we pray that you would um, speak through me, that it would be uh, your Holy Spirit speaking through me tonight. That as we look at your word, we would see the gospel and we would be encouraged to live a life that is in obedience to you and a life that loves you and longs to do um, as your word commands. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Just move this. So I wonder if you're anything um, like me, in that if you are told to do something, your automatic reaction is to probably want to do the opposite. Daff was speaking about this uh, last week during his sermon, and um, actually it's something that I know I definitely struggle with. As humans, we have this really fascinating reaction um, to laws. And it's not something that we learn as we get older, but it's something that actually we're born with. So if you ask a young child, or you tell a young child, don't jump on the bed, what is that young child going to want to do? We're told that the law of the road is 30 miles an hour, but we're running late to the prayer meeting. It's very, very easy for us to struggle with obedience, and it's something that I know I struggle with in my life. And the real issue really behind that, I think, is because so often we think that we know better than the people that are asking us for obedience, or we just want to be in control of our own lives. Well, we've been in Exodus in this series so far, and we've seen how God has heard the cries of his people as they are enslaved in Egypt. And we've seen him repeatedly promise that he will rescue his people, and that he's going to take them out of that slavery, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. But despite, despite the grace that he shows to them, he rescues them. Despite that, actually we see him then having to patiently deal with his people as they grumble against him. And we see they disobey him. And a real question we have as we come to this point in Exodus is, is this what God has rescued his people for? Well, we're going to look at three things tonight and we're going to see in three different ways how Israel have been rescued. And first of all, we're going to look at uh, chapter 19, and we're not going to go through this verse by verse, don't worry, there's 160 verses in these five chapters, Um, so if I took a minute on each of them, I imagine that quite a few of you would feel quite tired. But we're going to start in chapter 19, and what we're going to see first is rescued for reverence. We're going to see that God's people were rescued for reverence. So as we look down at um, chapter 19, what we see um, in verse 3, if you look down with me, is that Moses goes up as Israel's representative. And what God gives in verse 4 is a reminder of the incredible grace that he has shown to his people. Let me read that. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We see that actually there's this amazing thing that God has done. And Israel hadn't actually done anything to deserve that. But what we see as a response to that in verse 5 is that there actually is a response to that rescue. There is a call to obedience. Look down at verse 5 with me. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. For the people to live as God's people, they are to obey him. Not partially or when they want or when things are going well or they wake up in the morning and feel like it. But they are to obey him fully. And we actually see in the following verses why this obedience is so important. We won't go through all of these, but as we go through verses 9 to 25, what we see is that actually the people are to make themselves ready to go and have God dwell amongst them. They actually can't come in to God's presence. God is a holy God who must be treated with the reverence he deserves. So we have these instructions of the things they are to do, the fact they are to wash themselves, they are to abstain from sexual relations. But even then, they still can't come into God's presence. And when God does come into the presence of the people, we see that in verse 16. If you look down at verse 16, we see there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. We see the majesty of God as he descends upon this mountain. And the people are rightly trembling. Picture the scene if you go to maybe Snowdon or Ben Nevis and you're waiting at the bottom of the mountain. And look at verse 18. Imagine this happens. It's covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up just like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. I'd imagine if you were planning to go for a walk up a mountain and you saw that, you probably would decide to leave it and go and have a cup of coffee instead. And we're actually reminded again of God's holiness in this chapter. And as we get to the end of this chapter, we're specifically shown how holy he is. We see specifically in verse 23 that as he speaks to Moses, there is this limit that is put around the mountain. We see specifically that people are not to come into God's presence. The place that God is, is to be set apart as holy. And you may ask, well, why is there such a big deal about the people not being allowed into God's presence? Can't God just chill out? Why, why can't they go and see him? Why is there this seeming separation between the people and God? Well, just as we see in our relationships in this world, when there is rejection within a relationship, it leads to a breakdown in that relationship. If a husband cheats on a wife, it leads to a breakdown of sorts in that marriage. And what we see here is the people have rejected God. And because of that, they're guilty and they deserve his punishment. It's no small thing, no small misdemeanor. Actually, God is to be treated with reverence. He's to be treated with respect. Because he is the holy and all-powerful God. And actually, rejection of God leads to a rightful separation from God. So in many ways, what we see in this chapter is that God has rescued his people for reverence. They are rightly to see how glorious and how holy he is. And there's a real picture that actually they are separated from him. They can't come in to his presence. Only Moses is allowed into his presence. 
God has said that he has wonderful plans for them. He plans to make them into a holy nation, into a priesthood. But actually we can see that they are to revere him as well because of his holiness. And what we also see as we come on to chapters 20 to 23 is the Israelites are also rescued to be ruled. So first of all, they're rescued for reverence, but they're also rescued to be ruled. Now, although God had um, promised many times for our exodus, we see actually something that's repeated in most of these promises. We see the repetition that God is going to be the people's God. And what that means is that as a rescued people, the people are to come under God's rule. Now, when we see this, we could easily, in our minds, and I know I can easily have in the back of my head the question of, well, does God really have the right to demand that I need to obey him? Coming under somebody's rule doesn't seem like that attractive to me. I would rather live my life my way and do what I want to do. Well, look down with me at chapter 20 and the first two verses. Because if we don't see these things, then we, in many ways, can end miles off track in where we're supposed to be. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Many people will look to the Ten Commandments and they'll basically see them as a list of rules. Do not do this, do not do that. But actually, we see this amazing thing if we start from verses 1 and 2. We see that God is actually somebody who has brought his people out of slavery. The law that is going to follow is in response to the fact that he has saved his people. He has delivered them from slavery, and their response is to be a thankful people who come under his rule. And living under God's rule changes your whole life. It's not something that you can just casually approach. It's not something that you can just choose to deal with when you're bothered. The Ten Commandments gives specific instruction about how the people are to worship God, about how they are to relate to other people, and about their heart attitude. So let's look now at the Ten Commandments, probably the most famous rules in the history of the world. And what we see is they're, in a sense, split into some sections. So when we look at the first four, we're seeing that actually the Israelites are taught how to worship God. Let me read those for us. You shall have no other gods before me, in verse 3. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in the heavens above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to a third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And in many senses, this is building on the first point that we've seen, in that the people are to revere God. They are to respect him. For all that he's done, they are to come under his rule. And what that means is they are to worship him because he is holy and because he's rescued them. 
They are to hold him as the one and only true God. They are also not to have any idols, to worship other things like self or wealth or the things of this world. They're not to be a people who are ruled by material possessions. God's name is the one that is to be praised in their life, not just in the way that they speak, but in the attitude they have towards his name. And they are reminded consistently that actually coming under God's rule is a response to his rescue. He is to be their rest. We see that in the Sabbath day. They are to be reminded throughout the week about him, but specifically on the Sabbath to be remembered that they have been saved to have rest with their God. The Sabbath is a reminder that he has brought them out of slavery. And we see on top of how we are to worship God in the first four commandments, we see next how we are to relate to others. And this comes in the fifth to the ninth commandment. God's people were rescued to come under God's rule, but what God wants is he wants them to be able to relate to one another. He wants them to be a light to the nations, showing through their love for one another that they are a different people, showing that they are people who love one another and have been rescued for a reason. The mark of these relationships were the fact that they respect one another. There is respect for the lives of one another. They respect their parents. They respect the covenant of marriage. They respect people's property. And they respect justice as well. The people were to relate to each other as people that had been rescued. As you look down at these commandments, you can see what would a society look like if this was lived out. It would look so, so different to the society we see today. A society where transactions in business were not done behind people's backs and with lying involved. Marriages that were held as being loving one another and putting away the temptation to go after other people. Family life in which the younger children respect their parents rather than actually just seeing them as a burden. We see through all of this, God's wisdom and his love through the way that he tells his people to live in relation to one another. But we also see that he gives commandments and he gives a specific commandment, which is dealing with their hearts. The Ten Commandments also cover people's heart attitude. It's not just what people see you doing, but it's what goes on inside of us. The things that only we know. The things that if the person next to us knew about, we would feel ugly and ashamed. The advertising industry in this world basically is built around trying to get people to covet. If you look down at verse 17, let me read it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Yet we have an industry that is built to try and get us to think, my life would be better if. My life would be better if I had that extension. My life would be better if I had that car. My life would be better if I had that relationship. My life would be better if I looked like that. We live in a world that is telling us to covet, but God's people are to be marked out as those that have been rescued and those that therefore live as those who are not wanting to seek material gain. 
The commandments, therefore, actually in many ways cover the entirety of our lives. Many of you would have seen the interview that John Tilson gave just before he died. And he specifically said that if our lives are like a house, we can imagine that there are many rooms in that house. And his challenge was, are we happy for God to come into every room in that house? God wants your whole life to come under his rule. These commandments are not for just separate parts of our life. They are for the entirety of our lives. And the Ten Commandments are sandwiched in between the description of God's power. So if you look with me at verse 18, we see again there's this repetition. We see again that there is thunder and lightning. There's a trumpet and the mountain is seen in smoke. And we actually see that the people tremble with fear when they see God's power. And there is a sense in which the people are supposed to revere God. They're supposed to respect him. But look down at verse 20. Moses specifically says to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of, the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. God is not a tyrant. He's not trying to bring his people under some kind of dictatorship. But instead, there is a reminder in his power that the people are to hold him in reverence. They are to respect his holiness and his power. And this leads to them wanting to lovingly and gladly live under his rule. And what we see as we go on to chapters 21 to 23 is that God builds on this and gives specific case laws. He gives specific ways that the Israelites are to live in the day-to-day. Myself and Daph are going to have a little more of a conversation later about how that actually applies into our everyday lives. But these commandments are to cover everything that the Israelites do day-to-day. And you may read through this and wonder, why are there so many laws? Why is God talking about so many things? Well, Ed Welch helpfully says this about all these laws. The sheer number of the Old Testament holiness laws suggests that God's holiness is too quickly forgotten. God embedded reminders of his character in what the people ate, how they dressed, where they went, how they planted their fields, how they cut their hair, and when and with whom they had sex. In other words, the Israelites needed hourly reminders of the character of God. Apparently, we can never have enough reminders of God's extraordinary character. We can never meditate on it too much. So we've seen that the people are rescued to revere God, to respect his holiness. We've seen that they've been rescued to come under his rule, a rule that should actually be entire of their life coming under his rule. And finally, what we see is that they have been rescued for relationship. Turn with me to chapter 24. And as we come to this chapter, we are reminded again of the fact that the people cannot approach God. The people require a mediator. They require Moses to essentially go and represent them to God. They can't approach him themselves. Look down at verse 2. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. And actually what we see here is Israel respond. If you look down at verse 3, their response is one of obedience. 
When Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. They respond in obedience. And all of the 12 tribes are represented as Moses builds the altar. And we see that actually as they agree to come under his law, they are entering into a covenant with him, entering into an agreement they are going to live the way that he has commanded. And we see that that covenant is made by sacrifices being made. They are commemorating the fact that this covenant is taking place. But the reality is, is that God knows that his people will not be able to live out his law perfectly. The law actually in itself highlights the fact that the people cannot meet God's standards. The people are happily there saying, yes, God, we are going to follow your commandments. Yet we've seen already that they have disobeyed him. All it takes is for them to be a little bit hungry and thirsty, and suddenly they forget the fact that he's brought them out of slavery. The law itself is perfect. God has given it, but mankind isn't. It makes man aware of sin, but it doesn't provide a way for man to stop sinning. Moses may have been the people's mediator, but he could not deal with the people's sin. He could not provide a way for them to be right with God. And that's a problem that we share as well. And that's why it's so wonderful when we come to the New Testament, we see this great truth. Particularly if we come to Hebrews 12, we see that we have a new mediator who brings a better covenant. God's people are no longer to stand far off from a mounting of fear, but actually we come to Jesus as our mediator. We don't need to fear God's judgment for our sin. Because Jesus took the judgment on himself. The blood of the animals isn't required as sacrifice. Because Jesus hung on that hill at Golgotha as our mediator. Where he shed his blood to take our guilt. And just as the people are covered in the sacrifices of the animals. So as we're covered in Jesus' blood. We are made right with God and brought into relationship with him. That's why we have these wonderful words from Jesus in Luke 22. As he goes to take communion with his disciples, he says this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now the covenant in Exodus, we see, brings this incredible result. In that the elders get to experience fellowship with God. If you look down at verses 9 and 11 we actually see that the elders go up and we see that they can see the presence of God and yet he doesn't put his hand out against them. Though Moses is acting as a mediator, the people can dwell with God. And essentially what is happening here is we're being pointed to the Lord Jesus. We're being pointed to our greater mediator who through his sacrifice allows us to come into the presence of God. Ultimately, this passage leaves us all condemned as guilty. If we have time and we go through all of these commandments, we see that we fall short in so many areas. I know that I do. But when we're faced with our sin, we can look to the cross. We can see that God sent Jesus to pay the punishment for our sin. 
And just as God rescues the Israelites before he then calls them to obedience, so we are first rescued by Jesus and then called to obedience. We are called to respond because of what has already happened. And this has implications for us, whether we're a Christian here tonight or whether you're a non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, you may view the Ten Commandments as a set of rules. You may think that the Christian faith seems quite boring because it just seems like you're being told things that you can't do. But the reality is, is that none of us can meet God's standards because we all have rejected him. The Christian faith isn't rules, it's a relationship. It's realizing that you can be rescued from slavery of sin to a greater relationship. This passage and the whole of the Bible exposes us. It's not easy reading. As I'm preparing for this, I see how my life doesn't measure up to God's standard. And it is painful. We see that actually even in everyday life, we fall short of our own expectations. We see relationships with people break down. We can't even live how we want to, let alone how God wants us to. But what we are pointed to in the gospel is that actually, through Christ, we can be right with God. And the big issue will be, do you trust the lawgiver? If you look at God as somebody who is not to be held in reverence, then you won't seek to obey his law. But there will be a reaction to that. There will be a right separation from God. And we would love, if you're not a Christian here, to sit down with you and to read more about the Gospels. To sit down and read John with you and see how Jesus comes to earth to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be brought into a relationship with Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to remember what we've been rescued for. I think if I look at my own life and if I think about us as a church, it can be so easy for us to think, well, great, I've been rescued. I'm a Christian. And then actually slip into just wanting to live a comfortable life, that Surrey lifestyle, saving up for the new conservatory, going into London, going on the nice holidays every year, but actually not coming under God's rule. We are rescued to hold God in reverence, to respect his majesty, to respect his holiness. And we are rescued to come under his rule in all of our lives. We were rescued to be in a relationship with him. If you look back at Exodus 19 verse 6, we see what God calls his people to be. Let me read that for us. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter actually goes on in 1 Peter to speak more about this. You also are living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be a priest is to have a life that is fully consecrated to God. We may continue to struggle with sin. We will continue to struggle with sin. But what this verse says is that we can't offer acceptable sacrifices on our own and in our own strength. But we can through Jesus Christ. We can offer acceptable sacrifices to God through our Lord and Savior. 
And that means that despite our sinful nature, we can please God. Because when God looks upon us, he sees his perfect spotless son, Jesus representing us. Whether you feel that you're in a bad place as a Christian at the moment, or you're struggling with a specific sin, God looks upon you as he looks upon the son that he loves. And because of that, we are called to actually live out that identity. We are called to seek holiness. A life like this should show signs of repentance. It should show a person who wants to turn away from sin and turn to God to live out what they've been been saved to. Holiness is not a word that is very attractive nowadays, I don't think. It might seem like being holier than thou, or as Christians we could be scared that living as a holy person could seem like living by works. But what holiness is, is it is to live as somebody who has been rescued by Jesus Christ. I've recently had the privilege of reading J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And as we end, let me leave us with this. You must begin with Christ. You will do nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness. People try to make themselves holy, but sad work they make of it. They turn over new leaves and make changes, but they do so in vain. You desire to be holy? Then go to Christ. Say to him the words of the hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Take a moment now in the silence as we end and ask yourself, are there times that I don't treat God with reverence? Is there a particular area of my life that hasn't come under his rule? And as we have a moment of silence now, do business with God. Not because these things are what is justifying you, but because you've been rescued into a relationship with Jesus Christ.